Welcome back to the Kenny Chesser Podcast. I am your host, Kenny Chesser, and today we're going to be concluding our Culture in Crisis series. I think <laughs> I had some guest teachers uh, a couple Sundays where I was out preaching, and I might have uh, one or both of them on later to discuss what they taught in class while I was gone, but I taught the last lesson of the semester this past Sunday, so I'm going to be discussing that lesson here on today's podcast. It's borrowed from returning Kenny Chester podcast quote master Alexander Sosanitsin. I think I've been saying it wrong. I think I've always said Sosanitskin, but I think it's Sosanitsin. And we're going to be quoting uh, at length from one of his essays, and then we're going to be talking about a book by the same title by Rod Dreher. I think it's going to be a great episode. Buckle up. Let's get to work. I don't know. It seems to me that he shouldn't be saying that. Well, what is it that you want him to say? Shut him down. There is always this fallacious belief. It would not happen here. Here, such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. Alexander Sosanitsyn. He said this because in his encounters after leaving as an exile from his Russian homeland, that most people would stand mouth open aghast at the atrocities in which he reported and in his groundbreaking book, The Gulag Archipelago, in three volumes. He exposed the, the evil and the corruptness of the Stalinist regime exposed the immorality of communism and socialism as an ideology, how bankrupt it was, not only intellectually but morally, how morally depraved the leaders of the USSR had become. And he was adamant to tell people and remind them that human nature is the same across the board. One of my favorite quotes of all time, and I've quoted it on the podcast here, came from this man where he talks about if it was only easy enough, and I'm paraphrasing, to get, you know, get the evildoers, the bad people, those that are immoral, and put them on one side and we could destroy them. That way all of us good folks could live in peace. It'd be so much easier, he says, but I have found that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every man and it oscillates, goes back and forth. Now, I have the full quote somewhere, but I'm not. This, I've, got, I've got so many quotes that I'm going to read today. I didn't want to get into that one. But he wanted to remind people that you, you, you don't want to hear stories of Nazi Germany or communist Soviet Union or communist China or in our day-to-day uh, -day North Korea. You don't want to hear stories that come out of there or, or back to the CCP and the, the concentration camps they're running with the, the Uyghur Muslim population. You don't want to read that as, oh man, those people are depraved. Thank God, you know, we, we, we're who we are. You know, Jesus kind of echoes this and says, you know, don't, don't be like that man that prays in the temple. Thank God I'm not like that man over there. And that man over there is, 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 is sincerely confessing his sins, and we somehow think that we're beyond that. 
this opening quote today says, don't, don't, don't misunderstand this. All the evil of the 20th century, and there was a lot of evil. There was two world wars. There were millions of people that had died through starvation and famine and torture, man-made famine, torture, sent to prison camps, systematically destroyed as they were in the death camps in Germany and, 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 and Poland and, and places like that. He says, don't, don't, don't kid yourself. All the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. And why is that, do you think? And it's because there's a human element of that. And so we opened up with that quote. And the reason we do is because we want people to realize that we are not beyond, we are not beyond this. Like you would think that the 20th century would be a great teacher of some of these ideologies. We could retire them and we could, we could rightly condemn them. But they always keep popping up. They always keep bringing themselves up. And today's episode is not going to be an indictment on all those ideologies. I feel like we've given some of those uh, proper attention in some of our previous episodes in this about how the, the failures of those to take care of a society and to deliver on the, the bill of goods that they sold people. You know, it, it, it was an attractive ideology and, it, and, and for, for multiple reasons. But we should, you know, at this point, if you're intellectual or if you, you try to think about things at all, you should look at the evidence and say, okay, it's never panned out. And every time it doesn't pan out, they'll say, well, it's the, the true essence of that ideology has never been tried. It's kind of a, it becomes like a, a funny meme at this point that we just live with. Every time that it, it fails like it did in Venezuela, where they, they went from the one of the richest, as far as natural resources, rich countries in the world to literally people hunting down domesticated animals like dogs just to, to feed themselves and their families. And and then then what people normally will say is like, well, that wasn't that was an actual socialism. That was, you know, and true socialism has never been tried. And so, but again, we're not trying today's episode is not about that. So what is today's episode about? We're going to be talking about my man Alexander and his final address to the Soviet people before he left the Soviet Union. He was if you don't know anything about his history, it's, he's, a, he's a fascinating character in history. I would recommend reading biographies on him or his own writings or, or both. Um, I think I mentioned on the podcast before, I've read volume one of the Gulag Archipelago. It came to me. Uh, Solzhenitsyn entered my consciousness. It's probably been three or four years ago now. Um, I was listening to a Jordan Peterson lecture, and he talks about him in his books as well. And that was the first time I'd heard of the man and heard of the, the book, his great uh, world-changing book, that I, I, I started, you know, becoming very interested in this man. And so if you want to know a little bit of his biography, he actually fought in the Red Army, um, which if you know anything about world history, specifically World War II, that was the, the Russian army that fought with the Allied powers. And so he was a, he was a member of the Red Army, this, this huge, when I say huge, I think millions of, of people that fought um, in that army um, and, and the, the damages that they took, the suffering that they endured uh, were, were just catastrophic. If you ever see a good infographic that represents how many people actually died in World War II and their, their uh, country of origins, it will shock you how many Russians died um, during World War II. And so Mr. Solzhenitsyn was a soldier in the Red Army, so he paid a he paid a high price early on in his in his youth 
defending his homeland, defending defending Russia. And so if you know anything about world history, you'll know that there was a revolution there after World War One, And so the, he, he was already living into this, uh, being indoctrinated, being uh, becoming an ideologue. He was a part of the party. He was a part of communist USSR. And, and he fought for the Red Army during the Second World War. Now, you say, well, how, how does this man, it's like, you've got to understand, you grow up in an atmosphere, you become what you, um, what you are taught. You know, there is a, there is a breaking away that can happen. Uh, once you become older and your brain is fully formed, um, you know, if there's, a, if there's a child that has been raised in a cult, you know, and, and was, was told that, you know, you know, the sun is, um, is green and they never let the child outside. You can't blame the child for believing the sun is green. Everybody that takes care of him, every position of authority has told him the sun is green. Now there is a time when he actually maybe goes out in the world. He sees it for himself. So as the case with Solzhenitsyn, he is a party man. He is, he is a communist. He, he, he participates in that society. And so after the war, he's very intelligent. After the war, he, in a private correspondence with another professor, he criticized mildly Joseph Stalin. Stalin was the uh, the dictator of the USSR, and if you read anything about the the lifestyles they had to live back then, nothing was private. Whatever you thought was private was you know the government was reading. They they had uh, spies everywhere. They had secret police. I mean, it was just you, you cannot imagine the 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 torment that these people endured living in that type of totalitarian society. But anyway, the, the letter was discovered where he mildly criticizes uh, dear leader um, Stalin, and he is sent to the gulags. Now, you say, what is the gulags? The gulags were a, a prison camp. It's a, it's a forced labor camp, let me put it that way. And usually, you know, depending on the severity of your crimes, um, you, you know, you might would serve 10 years. I think uh, Solzhenitsyn served eight years. What was his crime again? Criticizing Joseph Stalin. That was his eight-year crime. And so it was during that time he wrote, he started writing the Gulag Archipelago. Now, one thing you have to understand, in that time, there was no mass media transmissions outside of USSR. There was no, the, the world was not connected like via internet. You know, it was, if you are familiar with the term Iron Curtain, you know, it was, I think it was coined, I think it might have been Churchill that, that, that originally said it or originally made it famous where he said that there, a great iron cur- curtain has fallen. And so there was this, this separation. And now if you are familiar with any missions work, you realize this is true as well. We had missionaries or p- people that had contacts within that USSR. And when there was this great purge, there was this iron curtain that fell. There was, you couldn't get information in and out of. Uh, and if you did, you, you were risking life. You really was, you were in, and so they were so secretive with their, their government and how their policies were being played out. And so he began writing the Gulag Archipelago as an, almost like an investigative journalist. Um, he was accounting for day-to-day activities there. Now, some have said that his, his, when that work made it out of the camps, when it got into the hands of uh, people that was publishing it outside of the USSR, you know, it was just, it was start, it was one of those things that cracked the facade of the USSR. No, no, nobody knew what, what was going on, the horrors 
of of these mass killings and in these things because they needed communism to succeed they needed to it have it to be well represented on the world stage and so there are things that you can read and watch during that time where we just we had no clue the world had no idea that these things were going on and so his work on the gulag archipelago it's not just though it didn't he didn't stop at an investigative journalist. It, he turned it philosophical in in which he started questioning his own role in the party. And he realized he's like, I'm I was part of the problem. I I did that. And so as as he, I believe it was in the sixties or seventies, I can't remember, I'm getting my timeline wrong. Uh, after he was released from the Gulag Archipelago, he became an advocate and he was going to be arrested again and probably I don't know if he's going to be put to death or what but he was able to leave the country before he did he published an essay I, I cannot recommend any more strongly and I'll put the link into the the episode description today that you read the essay in its um in its total to, read, read it from top to, to, to bottom it's great he's a brilliant writer it's not just dry facts he is he's very um introspective when he talks about his part uh in in, in especially in the gulag archipelago that the portions that i've read or, or the volume that i've read of it um but the the essay is is really it's a great attack on the idea that for something like that to happen for something like that to control and maintain control through a society it it has to survive through a myriad of lies and his answer for the russian people was I don't think we're ready to go out into the streets and protest like you see in these other countries. He says, I think it's too dangerous. We'll, we'll be killed. He says, but I'll tell you what we can do. We can just live not by lies. And I'm going to do some, I'm going to do some quoting from this essay um, now. I hope you don't turn me off because you're reading. I want you to listen to what he says. It's, it's brilliant. Um, but some of the things that he would say, he says, you can resolve. And he's, in, his, in his essay, this is what he says. You can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. Our way must be, I'm going to pull out sections here, selection from this essay, but I, I think you should read it all. He says, our way must be never knowingly support lies. You may not have the strength to stand up in public and say what you really believe. But you can at least refuse to affirm what you do not believe. If we must live under the dictatorship of lies, then our response must be, let the rule not hold through me, or let the rule hold not through me. You get what he's saying? He's saying, listen, just if, if, if you can't say what the truth is, don't, at least, at least you, the least you could, we can do if we can stop this thing is to, Stop supporting what lies are. Let's keep reading. And therein we find, neglected by us, the simplest, the most accessible key to our liberation, a personal non-participation in lies. Even if all is covered by lies, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. Let their rule hold not through me. And this is the way to break out of the imaginary encirclement of our inertness, the easiest way for us and the most devastating for the lies. For when people renounce lies, lies simply cease to exist. Like parasites, they can only survive when attached to a person. You see what he's talking about? He's saying, look, 
this this is this is something that's it's something easy for us to do, but it has the most devastating consequences on the lie itself. A lie can only survive as long as it's attached to a living organism. It's a parasite. So if if we refuse to let it live, when we live not by lies, the lie then dies. We are not called out, or we are not called upon to step out onto the square and to shout out the truth, to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We are not ready. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. He's saying as a Russian people that they had been conditioned for decades to live and participate in a society where you had to maintain and uphold the great lie, the big lie. He says, I don't think we're ready. I don't think we're ready for that. We're too, we're too weak. He says, it's scary for us. He says, but why don't we do this? Let's make a pact with one another. We don't have to say, we, we might not have the courage to say what we think right now. He says, but let us refuse to say what we do not think. Stop affirming them. I'm going to read one more quote before we go uh, into some of the, the, the book here um, that Mr. Dreher has put, uh, put forth. Last quote here. Our way must be never knowingly support lies. Having understood where the lie begins, and many see this line differently. He's saying, look, there's not a, there's not a consensus on when all this began and, and where the truth and, and the lie, where the, the lines are blurred. He says, look, I, I, we, we, we'll see this differently. He says, but we got to step back from that gangrenous edge. Let us not glue back the flaking scales of the ideology, not gather back its crumbling bones, nor patch together its decomposing garb. And we will be amazed how swiftly and helplessly the lies will fall away. And that which is destined to be naked will be exposed as such to the world. He's trying to rally his countrymen to see that if we just stop defending these lies, acting like it's okay when it's not okay, he says we've got to stop gluing back the flaking scales of ideology. Look at the imagery that he's using. We've we got to stop gathering back its crumbling bones. We've got to stop patching the de- de- decomposing garb. He said that it, the, the clothes are tattered and they're worn. We've got to stop putting a patch back on it. He said when we stop doing that, when we stop maintaining the lie, we will be amazed how swiftly and helplessly the lies will fall away and that which is destined to be naked. I love that. When, when we can see it for what it is, when we, stop, when we stop giving it cover, when we stop granting it permission to thrive, then it will be exposed as such to the world. Now you say, no, this man's, this is an attack on socialism and, and communism and, and, and the lies that it took to, for that to take hold and dominate millions of people in the USSR. What does that have to do with us? Um, uh, for that, I, I want to turn to Rod Dreyer. And or Dreher, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that name, but he wrote a book called Live Not By Lies. Now, last week we talked about another one of his books, The Benedict Option. Now, for you book lovers out there, I actually think The Benedict Option is a better book. I enjoyed it more. Live Not By Lies is an, is an incredible book, but I felt it read a little bit more of the historical, um, some historical anecdotes and some anecdotal evidence presented by uh, Mr. Dreyer, that he went and he talked to a bunch of people that had escaped after living under these type regimes. 
And they're sounding the alarm in America, and he's saying the the tone and tenor of the public discourse is almost identical. It's eerily similar to the tone and tenor of the public discourse of the communist countries that we fled. And so Mr. Dreyer introduces the distinction between old totalitarianism and new totalitarianism. And the old is hard, rigid, and the new is soft. This is what he says about the new totalitarianism. To grasp the threat of totalitarianism, it's important to understand the difference between it and simple authoritarianism. Authoritarianism is when you have the state monopolizing political control. That is mere dictatorship. Bad, certainly, but totalitarianism is much worse. According to Hannah Ardent, the foremost scholar of totalitarianism, a totalitarian society is one in which the ideology seeks to displace all prior traditions and institutions with the goal of bringing all aspects of society under control of that ideology. A totalitarian state is one that aspires to nothing less than defining and controlling reality. Truth is whatever the rulers decide it is. As Arden has written, whenever totalitarianism has ruled, it has begun to destroy the essence of man. So this is part of Live Not, uh, Not By Lies introduction. Let me read just a little bit further down. Many conservatives, conservatives today fail to grasp the gravity of this threat, dismissing it as mere political correctness, a previous generation's disparaging term for so-called wokeness. It's easy to dismiss people like former Soviet professor and hyster- uh, as hysterical if you think of what's happening today as nothing more than a return of the left-wing campus kookiness of the 1990s. Back then, the standard conservative response was dismissive. Wait till those kids get out into the real world and, find, and have to find a job. Well, they did. And they brought the campus to corporate America, to the legal and medical professions, to the media, to elementary and secondary schools, and to the other institutions of American life. In this cultural revolution, which intensified in the spring and the summer of 2020, they are attempting to turn the entire country into a woke college campus. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a desire to define and control reality. Are we living under old-school, hard totalitarianism? No. What are we living under? We're living under a culture that is pressuring all participants to toe the party line, to enter lockstep with this new ideology. And in, to do so, you must affirm every jot and tittle of the new doctrine. Let's read some more from the book and talk about it. It is difficult for people to raise in the, in the free world to grasp the breadth and depth of lying required to simply exist under communism. All the lies and the lies about the lies that formed the communist order were built on the basis of the foundational lie. The communist state is the sole source of truth. Orwell said in 1984, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. This was written by George Orwell. We've talked about this some on the this show. Under the dictatorship of the Big Brother, or of Big Brother, the party understands that by changing language, 
which Orwell described as newspeak, is the party's word for, or the newspeak is the party's word for jargon it imposes on society. It controls the categories in which people think. Freedom is slavery. Truth becomes now falsehood, and so forth. Doublethink, in George Orwell's book, is holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously, and you accept both of them. We, we call this, uh, in today's society, cognitive dissidence. It's how people learn to submit their minds to the party's ideology. If the party says 2 plus 2 equals 5, then 2 plus 2 equals 5. The goal is to convince the person that all truth exists within the mind and rightly ordered mind believes whatever the truth say, or whatever the party says is true. Let's quote from Orwell now. It was as though some it was as though some huge force were pressuring down upon you, something that penetrated inside your skull, battering against your brain, frightening you out of your beliefs, persuading you almost to not deny the evidence of your senses. In the end the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have had to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner than later. The logic of their position demanded it. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. The heresy of heresies was common sense. You feel like you're living there today, America? I don't know if you've seen any news over the last several uh, months, but there is a push for the idea that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Now, you say that's absurd. You're making that up. Google it, and you'll find, quote-unquote, intellectuals making the argument that 2 plus 2 could indeed mean 5. And there's papers and essays written on how that is even possible. And Orwell called it back in the day. He says, you got to say that. If you're going to redefine reality as it exists in someone's mind and say that's where the truth, the source of the truth comes from, then you'll have to envision a reality where that can be true. He said it's the it's the it's the end it's the end result of the logic. And so I'm going to just do a few more quotes. Man, we're at 26 minutes. I think I'm going to do part two of this because I've got several more things to say as we close out this series. Let me let me quote a little bit more from Live Not by Lies. He, he, he tells a story of a novelist. And what's funny is, like, you, you read those novelists in the early 20th century, the Aldous Huxleys, the George Orwells. There's just one. His name is Milosov, I guess, is, is, is who I'm going to quote from here. He wrote a, a novel in 1932 called Insatiability. He's a Polish writer. And he, he, he writes about, I'm sorry, the, the writer's name is, Stanislaw, and I ain't going to try to pronounce that word, <laughs> but he wrote a near-future dystopia. Now, you say, why are these people all writing these dystopian fictions or whatever? Because in that day, the ideology was trying to build a utopian future. But the people that were seeing the writings on the wall, they wrote these dystopian novels where how the future would never look like what the people promised it would, and people had to live with that. And so this is something that uh, this, this novel expresses. He says there was a Mongol army from the east that threatened to overrun their country. As part of the plan to take over the nation, people began turning up in the streets selling the pill of Murtibing. It's named after a Mongolian philosopher who found a way to embody this don't worry, be happy philosophy in a pill form, in a little tablet. Those who took the pill of Murtibing quit worrying about life. Even, even 
though things were falling around them or failing around them. When the eastern army arrived, it surrendered happily. Its soldiers relieved. Its soldiers relieved to have found deliverance from their internal tensions and struggles. Only the peace didn't last. But since they could not rid themselves completely of their former personalities, they became schizophrenics. What do you do when the pill of murti being stops working on you and you find yourself living under a dictatorship of official lies in which anyone who contradicts the party line goes to jail? Well, then you become an actor. You learn the practice of ketman. What is ketman? Ketman is a Persian word for the practice of maintaining an outward appearance of Islamic orthodoxy while inwardly dissenting. Ketman was a strategy strategy everyone who wasn't a true believer in communism had to adopt to stay out of trouble. It's a form of mental self-defense. You say, well, I can relate to that because if you don't, if you don't look like you're quote unquote, you know, down with the cause that you're, that you're, 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 you know, supporting this ideology, you'll have great threat of your livelihood. You can lose your job. You could, uh, in some places, go to jail. You can be fined. You can be sued. These things are happening in America right now. If you don't find if you, don't, if you don't uphold a certain ideology, you can lose your job, you can be sued, and you can go to jail. And it is happening in the, in the United States of America. So what do you do? You practice ketman. You, just, you, just, you act like you live it, either through silence or, or, or whatever, through your, through your endorsement. But internally, you don't believe it. So what's the difference between ketman and plano hypocrisy? As Milozov explains, having to be on all the time inevitably changes a person. An actor who inhabits his role around the clock eventually becomes the character he plays. Ketman is worse than hypocrisy because living it all the time corrupts your character and ultimately everything in society. The reason it's worse than hypocrisy is because eventually you cannot distinguish what you actually believe and the part that you're playing. I'm going to close with this, and we'll pick back up and do another episode um, when I get into the spiritual (laughs) aspects. Just read and quoted today and did a little history, but I felt like it was important. On the day of his Moscow arrest, February 12th, 1972, Alexander Solzhenitsyn published what would be his final message to the Russian people before the government exiled him to the West. In the title of his exhortation, he urged the Russian people to live not by lies. What did it mean to live not by lies? It meant accepting without protest all the falsehoods and propaganda that the state compelled its citizens to affirm, or at least not to oppose, to get along peacefully under totalitarianism. Everybody says they have no choice but to conform, says Solzhenitsyn, and accept powerlessness. But that is the lie that gives all the other lies their maligned force. The ordinary man may not be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but he can at least say that he is not going to be its loyal subject. What are you saying about today, Chesser? I'm going to tell you something. There's some lies that you can refuse to live by. You, you, you will be an outcast in modern society if you do not affirm that men can be women and women can be men. That's a lie. Just ignore your eyes and ears. 
when the man stands in front of you asked to be called a woman. Now you'll be labeled a transphobe. You'll be labeled a bigot. You'll be shamed publicly, but at least you won't be guilty of patching the decomposing garb that's covering the lie of this age. They're going to ask you to profess that life in the womb is just a clump of cells incapable of feeling pain or any discomfort. But you can say what you know is true, that it is indeed a life and it matters to God. They want you to believe that if you were born the wrong skin color, that all the sins of your fathers, grandfathers, and their fathers before them are laid on your shoulders and on your head, and you are guilty of those past sins, even if you are found in Christ. But we know there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. You can stop breathing life into that lie and calling it some social justice gospel. It is not justice, and it's definitely not the gospel. They want you to affirm that marriage can be between anyone or multiple people or minors or God only knows what next year. But that is a lie. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You don't have to provide social cover for what the Bible clearly describes as sin. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Brothers and sisters, let's make a pact. To not live by lies. Let the lie come into this world. Let it even have power over society. But let it not happen through us. This has been the Kenny Chester Podcast. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Kenny Chester Podcast. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. 